Good, good afternoon, uh, Liam. Hope you're well. Thank you very much for joining us in the uh, the Bromley Den. Uh, great pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Okay. You're looking uh, remarkably refreshed. You're looking okay. You haven't got a lockdown haircut and look, unfortunately like me. <laughs> and the, or, bit, bit, and the beard's bit always been there. A bit, bit, bit longer, a bit greyer. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, we, we, we've got a few questions and a few points that we want to go through. And obviously we're running uh, live. So we may sort of pick up on what people have got to say and things like that. It's free flow. You know, nobody's here to do anything. We're, we're keen to understand exactly what we want to do. I think, to be honest, I could probably talk to you for days. Not, we don't have the benefit of that. So I'll try and keep things concise and we, you yeah. know, we'll lead you to keep things so concise. So uh, general introduction. I'm going to say you've been along, uh, around a long time, which is you know, <laughs> compliment to your skills as an MP and things like that. Over 25 years representing Parliament, Hodgill and uh, the area. And bearing in mind that we first met when I was a serving fireman at Ward End Fire Station in all around the 90s, when we were both considerably younger and things like that. And we both, I think, had a, had a different outlook on life um, <laughs> to that. So just a quick whistle-stop tour of your, you know, your history and then if we can talk about your, polit your politics and where you've been and some of the massive achievements that you've achieved through your career. Yeah. To remind yeah. our well, audience, well, it's, yeah, it's, it's very, it's very kind of you. Um, so I, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a public service family. My mum was a science teacher. You know, my dad was a, a local government officer. My dad was someone who um, was a he was a town planner. He was obsessed with new towns. Um, so I spent um, a bit of a childhood touring around various new towns uh, of England, which were architecturally quite interesting. Often they had, they sort of forgot to build an education system. So I didn't get to go to uh, schools that were especially good. Um, but, you know, because I grew up in the 80s, that's when I was radicalised. I joined the Labour Party when I was 15. Um, I didn't really get active until I was at university. Um, but, you know, I was in a, a kind of a political generation that was uh, quite extraordinary. So I was elected leader of the union in Manchester. Um, my peers were um, a guy called Tom Watson, who was the president yeah. of Hull, um, yeah. a guy called Stephen Twig, who was president of the NUS. So there was a there was a kind of a political generation of us. And I, you know, then went to work as a staffer on the Blair campaign in, in 96. I reorganized Millbank for, for Peter Mandelson all those years ago. But then, you know, my career was in business. So, you know, I spent some time in, as a strategy advisor, as a, as a banker with a bank called Rothschilds, and then was lucky enough to win a Fulbright scholarship to business school in the States. And, and when I got back, I started a business um, in the tech space. But, you know, what had happened to me along then was one of those life-changing experiences that hit all of us. I lost my mum to, uh, to cancer when she was 52. And I suppose, you know, when that kind of thing happens to you, you get an early lesson in the fact that we're not here forever. Um, and you have to kind of get on with what you think you put on earth to do. And for me, that vacation was always politics. And so, you know, we set up in Birmingham then. I'd moved my business to Birmingham. Um, my wife, who was at Aston University, she wanted to, to raise our family here in Birmingham. And then um, and then I was in the wrong place at the wrong time and got elected to Parliament in the middle of the Iraq war. <laughs> <laughs> you know, turned a 14,000 majority into a majority of 450. So it was a <laughs> great success. <laughs> so, but no, no, you've stayed the test of time. So congratulations on that. I think that... Um, We'll need to talk about the COVID, the crisis we're in, and, yeah. and we'll talk about that. But I think before we do that, I think both of us really want to 
you know, talk about the NHS, key workers and things like that, and just really both show our gratitude to the fantastic work that they're doing. And, you know, the, the, the residents of Birmingham and the combined authority of things like that have been particularly notable nationally yeah. of some of the fantastic work that they've done, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the strange things about this crisis is that we're all self-isolating and yet we've come together as a community, um, you know, stronger than for many, many decades. And, you know, the real kind of symbol of that is our, is our National Health Service. I mean, the way in which they have just put their shoulder to the wheel, um, the dedication with which they just go to work every day, you know, many of them don't know if they're gonna come home that night, do they? Yeah. Um, and I got an email from Jackie Smith at the um, at our NHS last week to say, uh, you know, 1,500 or 1,900 people have now survived COVID and come home. You know, every single one of those folk had come home because of the love and care of the yeah. National Health Service. And so I think, you know, when you ask people about what is the value it, that they most cherish in Birmingham, the answer always comes back as compassion, always. Yeah. Yeah. And what the NHS does is it, it shows us compassion in, in action. And what we're seeing in the NHS and in our social care sector right now is just, it's the best of our city and the best of our country. It's just magnificent. Yeah, so we both recognise those and applaud those and things like that. I mean, let, 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 let's get it on to the, the, the government sort of handling of COVID and things like that. I'm not going to spend too much time on that. And clearly this yeah. is a debate that's going to, that could run all afternoon. But generally speaking, um, you, you've been in power, you've been, you know, in a minister and things like that, and you've had a couple of crises to deal with. Have, you know, is there any lessons learned from your experience? Do you think the government potentially, one, have handled it well, two, could have done things better, and, and clearly with the benefit of hindsight, that's easy, and that's an easy question for you, but just your general views, I think. So I think, you know, on, on, on the positive side, um, the speed and scale of the response in terms of the financial lifelines that have been put into the water you know that has been good and you know we have a very centralized system of government but what that means is that the treasury's ability to take big decisions at scale is actually quite robust and so um that's been good i mean what i remember from the financial crash last time around is you have this um we used to kind of call it the, the, the post announcement pre-delivery problem where you announce the money from the treasury but then the schemes then actually take some time to get up and running and they're not quite right. And, and so you basically need very good radars to be able to work out what's working, what's not working. And then you need systems to be able to adapt very quickly. The second thing that I want to say, this is on the more negative side, is that in a crisis like this, chickens come home to roost. And mm -hmm. the underinvestment in parts of the NHS, certainly the social care system, that is a chicken that's come home to roost. And so... A lot of the problems that we've got in uh, PPE, for example, in track and trace, um, you know, we've been a long way behind other countries like South Korea. Um, and actually, if we'd maintained the investment um, that we should have, we wouldn't be in that position. Now, that's not a, you know, that's not a particularly partisan view. Rupert mm -hmm. Harrison, who was George Osborne's special advisor, said that on a webinar yesterday as well. So I'm hoping that this is one of the lessons that we can learn. If you um, if, if you try and run public services on the cheap, when the shit hits the fan, you end up with problems. And, you know, yeah. that is absolutely what, you know, I can see in Birmingham now. So any, when you were in uh, Parliament and as a minister and things like that, have you, did you take any lessons away with you? Yeah, I mean, you basically, 
you learn that it's the unknown unknowns that can knock you over very fast. And so okay. actually based on that experience, I suggested to the other MPs in Birmingham and the city council that, that we build our own kind of Birmingham radar. Um, and, that, and that is actually working incredibly well. So we have feeds from about 12, 13 different organizations that come in on a Tuesday night. It's everything from bank credit to food banks to PPE and care homes. And then we bring that together. I write a note on a Wednesday morning. It goes into a conference call with MPs on a Wednesday with the council. And that allows us to move very quickly where we spot issues. So nurseries are not, you know, the system for nurseries isn't working at the moment. We've still got problems with PPE. Free school meals is still a bit of a shambles. We've got quite a lot of kickback about cemetery opening hours. So mm. you, you could, if, if you sat down and tried to predict this stuff, you'd never predict, yeah. you'd never predict it. So you basically just need very good radars that allow you to spot things very quickly. <clears throat> say, right, guys, that's a problem over there. We need to get on top of that like now. So that's the big lesson I took away. We, um, we had the pleasure of interviewing Ian Ward, Councillor Ian Ward in the den uh, a week yeah. or so ago. Uh, and that was, that was fascinating. Always got on well with Ian and always enjoyed his, his yeah. positive mindset. And he was talking about the, the government support that structured kind of, there's about 90 odd percent of the SMEs in Birmingham sit outside of that support. He's adamant that he was going to look at, you know, governmental resources, local government resources to support these businesses. He didn't want anybody going out of business and the council would look at case by case basis. That's it. That's a hell of a commitment from him. And I've since forwarded a number of, uh, you know, concerns from business yeah. leaders to him and he's dealt with each one of them, you know, disseminated it through his team and things like that. Yeah. So I think it's pretty good. So the, the care package that's coming from the government regarding businesses, how do you think that sits with us at the moment? So, you know, it would have been, um, no, no one, you, you can't design these things from 20,000 yeah. feet perfectly. Um, but what it means is that when they hit the ground, you've got to see what works and what doesn't work. And right now we've got uh, three big problems. So one is that if you're a small business, but you're in a shared property um, where the landlord is paying the business rates, you don't qualify for the grant scheme. Um, that's a significant problem for businesses, small businesses yeah. um, in Birmingham. Uh, the second thing is that for a lot of small traders um, who perhaps have been self-employed, they may not have been self-employed for three years and they are you know, not qualifying for the self-employment help. And so they're falling onto the tender mercies of universal credit, which is frankly um, not worth much. Now, that's a significant problem for a very entrepreneurial city like Birmingham. You know, we are still the city, you know, not of a thousand trades, but 10,000 trades now. But a lot of those um, individual traders, you know, are not qualifying for the help that they need. And they've got families to feed as well. The third thing that we're going to talk a lot more about next week is the manufacturing sector. So Oxford Economics published a study this week that shows that Birmingham will be one of the cities that is hit hardest in the world, uh, certainly in the advanced world, because of our manufacturing base in our university sector. Now, the warning sound that we've got to send to government now is that if you wind down the job retention scheme too quickly, you're going to be looking at literally tens of thousands of people out of work in the manufacturing sector. So there can't be a rush to exit out of this because the global economy has taken a $9 trillion hit. Those are the markets into which we sell. So to put that in context, the world economy this year and next year is gonna shrink by the size of Japan and Germany put yeah. together. That is a big number. 
and that's a massive hit to the export market of companies like Jaguar Land Rover. So we need you know people to be quite cool-headed about how they wind these schemes down. And I think our call will be, look, keep these schemes in place until we are safely on the other side. I mean, uh, now that you pick on Jaguar Land Rover, let, let's look at that. Andy Palmer from Aston Martin, I had communication with him about a week or so ago when he announced that they were going to go back into production, you know, yeah. sort of around the first week in sort of May, they were going to start looking at things. June was definitely going to be ramping up. Their exit strategy around all this and Jaguar Land Rover would have followed. We, we're, we're in a balanced position where we need to stimulate the economy, you need to get manufacturing working. And I'm, I'm absolutely passionate that manufacturing is the backbone of the economy. Many people would disagree with us, but, you know, coming from the Midlands, you know, of the 10,000 trades, and I'll pick up on your point yeah. there. Manufacturing is critical to us. Are we doing the right thing starting that early? Should we be looking a little bit further? What's, it, you, what's your all, gut feeling? It all basically comes down to whether you can go back to work safely. So if you can, if you can guarantee um, safety conditions in the workplace, then I think it's wise to begin that phased unlock. What we can't yeah. risk is a double peak in the virus that leads to a double dip recession. That really will hurt us hard. So the phased unlock, I think, is um, a sensible strategy. But what we have got to do in addition to this is actually calculate the size of the demand stimulus that is now going to be needed. Now, that has got two important elements. One is about keeping the job guarantee scheme in place for manufacturing. The second thing, though, is that, as I said, we don't want to go back to the economy we had before. We want a different kind of economy in the future. And so that means that the, the recovery plan has to be big, bold and green. And we should be looking at where there are huge construction projects in the region that can help us decarbonise the region. And we should be bringing those forward. And the obvious one is high speed, too. So, you know, the government decided earlier in the year that high speed, two should be pushed back. My argument now is let's bring it forward, because yeah. the truth is that those big uh, infrastructure projects create a hell of a lot of jobs. They put money in people's pockets. They put food on the table and we should be accelerating them now, especially where they're virtuous for the environment. So we need to kind of rethink this. And, you know, one of the offers I want to make to uh, people watching is, you know, we are, um, you know, as the shadow mayor's operation. We're now back in business. We are setting up a a shadow mayor's policy unit next week um, and we're going to be trying to kind of open up as, as much as we can organizing webinars and roundtables like this to begin gathering views from across the region um, to help us get that recovery plan right. I think that just picking on some of your points if we look at the manufacturing and we go back to that manufacturing started to fail a few weeks before you know we went into lockdown yeah. and things like that and that's because some of our production our supply chain is abroad, relies on Asia and further than that and things like that. So our just-in-time manufacturing uh, mindset and processes fell very, very quickly and very short and that type of thing. So I think there's a, there's a bit of a renaissance of buy British, look at the investments, look at manufacturing, look at the yeah. supply chain through the UK. And it's pleasing to see that people like Andy Palmer have embraced that and, and, yeah. and his mindset was, well, actually, we're okay. Majority of our component parts do come from the UK. We've got them sitting here and all ready to go. Although it's easy to comment on a luxury car brand that aren't turning out tens of thousands of models, but I think that invest in British, buy British, and let's have a look at 
our own markets is pretty good. And that might fit with your economic sort of strategy. I, I completely agree. I mean, I think, um, you know, if you go back to, you know, Matthew Bolton, <laughs> I often do, um, you know, when, when people came to Matthew Bolton's workshop, he used to say, I sell here, sir, what all the world desires, power. You know, we, we, we have a particular skill set around, um, uh, you know, from the steam engine to Frank Whittle in Coventry, you know, the pioneer of the jet engine. I mean, we're, th this is in our DNA. And what we've got to do now is capitalize on that for a low carbon world. So if you look at the investments that are going into uh, battery technology that will so, be so important for electric vehicles in Coventry, uh, if you look at the JLR engine plant up at uh, Wolverhampton on the I-54 site, you know, we've got some real capabilities here in the region. So let's build on that. So, you know, I've said, for example, if we're going to have high speed rail, let's build the trains in the black country. You know, let's actually build this stuff here because actually mm. we're really good at it and it's good for exports that pay our way in the world. To totally agree, totally agree, and bring that, that manufacturing back to us. The other thing that you uh, you keep dipping into, and, and, and being on the same mindset as you, is the carbon neutral aspects and things like yeah. that. So if we can handle that in certain ways, let's look at the current situation. Um, uh, uh, my next question is going to be, what's the positives out of the position that we're in now? So yeah. prior to that, let's have a look at the carbon. So there was, uh, there was bouncing figures around as 8% reduction in the CO2s yeah. in the environment and things like that. Should we be looking at that? Should we be taking the opportunity and going, actually, look at the clean, you know, the air emissions, look at what's going on. It actually works. Look at the credible evidence. You know, nothing's been on the road. It's on unprecedented times. There's an opportunity of going, there's the stats. This is why we're going to, you know, block dirty engines and everything else yeah. from the city centre. And further, so welcome your views on that. So when I was doing um, my research with people, uh, when I was um, taking a decision to run for mayor, um, one of the themes that kept coming back up was that people wanted our region to be a leader again. They wanted us to be a pioneer. They wanted us to be a trailblazer. That's something that's always been kind of special about the spirit here. And people, frankly, felt that we were falling behind that. You know, they were looking at the way Manchester and London were blazing ahead and they felt actually that we weren't kind of in the, in, the, in the vanguard. And I genuinely think that there's an opportunity for us to, as the home of the carbon revolution, you know, you think we invented the steam engine here, the carbon revolution, it started up in Dudley Castle a couple of hundred years ago. Well, why can't the region that sparked the carbon revolution now lead the zero carbon revolution? Now that means setting a much more ambitious target for becoming zero carbon. Um, crucially, we need to be ahead of London and Manchester. And we need to be doing two things. So we need to be decarbonizing our transport system um, and we need to be decarbonizing our homes. That, that, that'll be the, the two big contributions. Now, what that means is um, an electric vehicles revolution, but it also means experimenting with hydrogen, um, particularly when it comes to buses and indeed to uh, trains as well, light, light and heavy rail. We've got that technology. I mean, you go down to Tisley, I mean, that's, you know, the, that, that is potentially a hub in Tisley for um, hydrogen fueled vehicles. And if you think every 90%, I think of the UK population is within a four hour truck ride of East Birmingham. Yeah. So, so why can't that be the hub of green logistics? It could be the green, the hub of green logistics. Why aren't we, you know, insisting that all public transport vehicles, you know, over the next five or six years become electric. Why aren't we creating cheap leasing deals for taxis? 
and crucially fleet drivers i mean i've started talking to to bt and royal mail um and indeed uh, caden um about their fleets if you begin rolling some of those big fleets onto ev if you begin you know really developing um the potentials of hydrogen for longer distance travel um and you push ahead on electric buses that can make a massive massive impact and you know some of that impact is in the air that we breathe. I mean, I, I carry around an air quality monitor when I'm out campaigning. It's shocking. You know, the quality of the air, it's not just the city centre. You know, if you, go, if you go out canvassing or you do street surgeries in, in inner city Birmingham, the air is lethal, you know, and that's yeah. contributing to the eight-year gap in life expectancy between Allen Rock and Sutton Coalfield. So I, uh, I went into Birmingham last week just to give blood and walked in there, parked, walked through part of the city. Clearly there was nobody there, which was quite a bit of a strange sort of environment. Yeah. But actually, I'm 100% certain that clear, the air was definitely clear. It, it just felt better. Bit of a sunny day, maybe because I've been locked up for a few weeks, but <laughs> stepping aside from that. A couple of things I want to pick up on. So Joe Banford this morning, there was an article talking about hydrogen buses, and they're talking about quarter of a million tonnes, half a million tonnes, of carbon reduction and things like that. You're absolutely right. The technology is there and things like that. And if we look at what we're looking at uh, with Transport for West Midlands, a billion, 1.3 billion pound investment strategy, and we're going to call it a strategy around transport and things like that. That does talk about metro rails. It talks about opening branch lines up and the connectivity of the region improving. I don't really see so much driving, no pun intended, around sort of the hydrogen and dropping off the fossil fuels so much. Or cycling, actually. I mean, cycling is yeah. another big opportunity. And if you look at what, um, so Andy Burnham and I came up through Parliament together and uh, we were ministers together. And so we stay in touch. And what Andy's doing with Chris Boardman around cycling, uh, similar Dan Jarvis in Yorkshire, you know, they're putting cycling front and centre. I mean, we, we used to be the epicenter of making cycles in, in, you know, in, our, in our part of the world. So I, th I think that's one of the other missing ingredients as well. I mean, you try and cycle through East Birmingham, you know, you're taking your life in your hands. <laughs> <laughs> as you're I, I, I think what is interested, and, uh, and I've commented on a couple of times, is around the Commonwealth Games, there's an initiative by the canals and, and riverways working with WhatsApp, the World Against English Plastic, to clean up all the waterways. So 22 yeah. miles of waterways, all going to be cleaned up. That's going to be the, the walkways, you know, the, uh, the, the roadways in effect for the pedestrians. He can go from Gas Street Basin or, you know, all the way through to, you, right. you know, some of the games and things like that, that sort of stuff. So Alexander Stadium, you can walk along there. Now, if you walk that route at the moment, you're probably taking your life in your hands yeah, with some, yeah, of the, yeah. some of the yeah. issues that are there. But if we're setting a standard of cleaning up 22 miles, of these walkways turn it into that little bit of investment for you know potentially Absolutely. from the mayoral's office yeah. to open these uh as bike lanes and things like that they're already there and maybe even going back and putting some barges back on the waters and moving some things oh, around like that who yeah, knows definitely and i mean if you look at what cities like san diego have done with their riverside one of one of the key things they've done is they've obviously made it they've made it clean they've made it safe they've also made it lit and you know this is one of the, the bits of in infrastructure we don't have on our canals actually we actually need to light the paths as well so yeah. that they are places that you can walk and cycle in, in the evenings the other thing that i'm really interested in doing is actually bringing the richness of our diversity into the waterways a little bit better so 
um, the Bangladeshi community in our city is, is very big. It's also a very riverine culture. So if you go to mm. Bangladesh, it's the biggest river delta in the world. You know, there's a, there's a tradition and a culture of working, living, playing on the river. Actually, we're not at the moment succeeding in bringing the diversity of our communities into the stewardship of our waterways in the way that we could. So we have those very cool Bangladeshi dragon boat um, yeah, yeah, we both which, attend, yeah. Which, which yeah. I sort of lose in every year. Um, but, you know, <laughs> it, it, it did kind of make me think that we need to be a bit more kind of imaginative and creative about unlocking some of the cultural assets that we've got to bring these assets of our own here in Birmingham alive a little bit better. I think the waterways of Birmingham, and we're going to use the old point of more uh, waterways than Venice and yeah. so on and things like that. You know, we are slightly overlooking them, and let's bring them back into play. Maybe with the Commonwealth Games building up to that, they're cleaning them up. And I think your point about lighting them, but let's light them with solar lighting and things yeah, like that, so exactly. it's clean energy. Yeah. You know, solar, you know, efficient, bought via black country manufacturers, I think is a, is a different thing. So we'll take that forward. I think the other thing that you picked up on is championing some multinational companies. You picked on uh, one of the companies is BT. Now the headquarters is coming to Birmingham. Yeah. We can literally walk across the city, knock on the door and say, what are you doing about clean energy? What are you doing about hydrogen vehicles and things like that? Exactly. And we can point you in the direction of a manufacturer. Precisely. Yeah. And they're up for it. I mean, that's the good thing. You know, they're up for yeah, it. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Okay. Just a, a bit of a personal thing. I've got a bit of an issue with the press. Um, you know, the, the way that they've been conducting themselves recently. I think that it's negative, quite vindictive, and I think some of the people that really chase and, you know, can smell blood in the water when they're speaking to not only politicians, but some business leaders and things like that. You've been uh, at the other end of that, you know, yeah. quite often defending yourself well, but quite often I think there's been a bit of blood in the water occasionally with you. How do you feel <laughs> that the press have been handling the current situation? I think it's been mixed and... The thing that you always notice is that the local press always does a better job than the national press. So the local press, I think, you know, right across the region has done a really good job at celebrating our heroes and celebrating the way in which communities have come together. And you know, the, truth, the truth is that, you know, politicians, anyone with power, um, they do need holding to account and they do need a press that is a stringent, um, and challenging and demanding um, but you know one of the reasons that newspaper sales are collapsing is because people don't like to buy them because they don't want to read what's in them frankly mm, and yeah. you know I talk to my kids about this a lot so you know my eldest is 19 um, you know they would they, they would never dream about buying newspapers now it's just not it, it, the, the, the tone of voice is wrong the things they cover is wrong um, and frankly, you know, they're just, it, it's negative. It's not positive. It's, it's never win-win. Yeah. It's never, you know, energizing, is it? It's always running. Yeah, it's, it's, it's taking us down. I think what's quite interesting is Mark Reeves has gone digital, seems to be doing some quite innovative, creative things. I think Mark is, and I know this from Mark's bosses at, at Reach PLC. I mean, Mark is a really important pioneer of this stuff. He's doing an amazing Yeah, he is. He's done well. And I think if we pick up on Ollie Hills from uh, Birmingham yeah. Updates, he's Mr. Positive, sending such fabulous local stories, yeah. you know, and putting a local spin on some national stuff. That's quite inspiring. Yeah. So I'm happy to listen to these two and then Piers Morgan's on <laughs> Reach in the morning. But anyway, we're, we're, we've done that bit today. So let's talk about... Um, 
the, the combined authority. Let's talk about, you know, your going forward as a mayoral candidate and things like that. So when's the date? How's it all looking now? When does it all start unfolding? And crucially, when do you launch your campaign and what does it look like? <laughs> well, Any of those points? <laughs> <laughs> so it's next May. Um, so yeah. it, gets, it gets put back about a year. So uh, I think this Thursday, we basically mark uh, the year countdown. Um, there isn't really time for a launch in the traditional sense because we're also kind of hands on deck at the moment that um, there's just no time to think about anything that isn't kind of immediate. Uh, we have now um, agreed on the labour side of the family um, a, a better way of getting ourselves organised. So we had to take a little bit of time for Keir Starmer to get settled in as the new leader of the Labour Party. Um, we are now going to start um, working much more effectively together in the region. So we're bringing together the trade unions, the members of parliament, uh, Keir's shadow cabinet and the labour leaders in the region as a team. Um, that begins next week. Um, and so we have a political job to do, which is to serve the people we were elected to serve. But, yeah. you know, we also have a task to do, which is to hold, you know, the current mayor to account for things that we think he should be doing better. Um, and then crucially, as we go over the next kind of three to four months, we're throwing our doors open to anyone who wants to help us. Because I guess, you know, I've, you, you politely said that I've been in politics for a long time. I suppose I'd, I've learned a lot from things I've done well, and, and I've learned a hell of a lot more from the mistakes that I've made. And mm. I think, you know, when I was a young minister, I was a very kind of aggressive, um, very demanding, uh, very relentless kind of guy. And I think um, <coughs> as I've got older, I've kind of mellowed a little bit. And I suppose the, 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 the model of leadership that I think is actually now needed in the city is, it's not a hero model of leadership. We don't want to build a pedestal, stand on it and have lots of pictures taken. Actually, we need to be, what we need is a servant model of leadership, which is actually helping yeah. those who want to run go as far and as fast as possible. And, you know, when I look at, you know, the combined authority and the local authorities that we've got together, I can see the holes and the gaps but I mean, you know this as well as I do because um, you, you're you out there all the time. This, this, this city is full of frustrated people. Yeah. It's full of people who think our potential is incredible and somehow we're just not realizing that potential. Um, and so the, the, the task of the mayor needs to be to create capacity because yeah. right now our problems are bigger than our capacity to solve them. So we need to turbocharge the capacity give people the tools to get out there and do the business. And so that is not about me, the big I am. That is about almost leadership from the back. It's about, yeah. it's about equipping others to run and make the running. And that's a very different kind of leadership style um, to the style that we think we've got at the moment. It's about Ronald, Ronald Reagan actually used to have a sign on his desk that says, there's absolutely no limit to what someone can achieve if they don't mind who takes the credit. You know, I, I have been in, I've now been in politics for, for long enough to need no more uh, either abuse or credit. <laughs> I've had my life full of both. <laughs> but a, a mayor and a mayor's office that actually equips others to succeed, that is actually how we're going to unlock the potential of this region to be amazing.
Brilliant. And, and, and there's a famous quote, and, and you should never quote somebody if you can't remember where he comes from, but it goes, <laughs> there go the people and I must follow them because I'm their leader. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that kind of thing to that. So let, let's get back to the nitty grits about you becoming uh, the next mayoral candidate and, and, and becoming the next metro mayor. So you will have strategized, you will have written yeah. your manifesto, it would have all been there, and knowing you, you'd have planned it meticulously, everything would have been in there. How much of that is just about to be torn up because of the situation we're in now? And, and how does that fluid document, very, yeah. very fluid document, come to life? at the given time for May, you know, in a few months before that? So it's a great question. So the, the manifesto that we developed was based on thousands of conversations with people across the region. Mm. And what it basically boiled down to is three big missions. So mission number one, lead the zero carbon revolution in a way that creates good jobs. Second, end the moral emergency of homelessness and hungry families. We are the second city in the sixth richest country on earth it is not acceptable uh, that people like kane walker die on our streets not acceptable no one in our city thinks it's acceptable it's not good enough to have cranes in the sky and people dying in the doorways not acceptable in the 21st century so building homes ending homelessness making sure there's no hungry families that's priority number two priority number three is a little bit harder to articulate but it's it's the enabler of the other two things really. And so when you talk to people, most people feel that they're really proud of, of us as a, a diverse city that lives together well. But the truth is, people feel that's in peril. They feel that the rise in hate crime, the rise in homophobia, the rise in Islamophobia, jeopardizing that unity in the community. And what people want is a civil society project that weaves us together around culture, around sport, around the arts. And, and actually that's taken a huge step forward over the last four or five weeks because of the way in which, you know, we're all coming out on our doorsteps at eight o'clock on a Thursday night to kind of cheer one of these great collective institutions that we've built. So those basic, uh, that trinity of ideas, green, homes, civil society, solidarity, those, those, those are, that's our North Star. That is what guides us. Quite how we do that, yes, that is going to change. But there are some opportunities to change direction in good ways. And th the point is that I'm, I'm not going to sit in, in this living room and write this plan. We're going to write it together. You know, and that is what, you know, as a team, that is what we're incredibly good at, is facilitating the conversation. We're going to weave this strategy together. It's not going to be my plan. It's going to be our plan. Brilliant. And, uh, and I'm still reminded about the positive outcomes of the situation we're in, but yeah. I'm not going to ask you that question now. The question I'm going to ask you is about homelessness. It's, yeah. For years and years, it's been a problem. And then, it's, you know, and we've all struggled with it. We've all tried to help. We've all tried to do our things. So many organisations come together to try and work, you know, to, to make some magic happen and things like that. But all of a sudden, because of the unprecedented times we're in, we seem to have got to grips with it. We seem to have resolved it, or you know, pretty much near damn it, have resolved it. In your opinion, can we take the strategy? Can we keep it going? Can we get these homeless people off the streets of Birmingham and the, you know the combined authority our region? What do you think to that? Yeah, it's it's a great it's a great question. I mean, as you know, it's a personal thing for me because um, you know after I lost my mum, actually the thing I never talked about for many years was what happened to my dad. You know, he took a a plunge into um, alcoholism that eventually killed him um, about five or six years ago. And it was, 
it was after you know I felt I'd you know as, as a son as a child an alcoholic you always feel that it's kind of your responsibility to fix these things and mm. it was after that I started working with our homeless community in Birmingham and I met a lot of people who were self-medicating trauma with drugs and alcohol in exactly the same way my dad was um so I've I've worked on this a lot and you're right there are only about 10 to 15 people now still sleeping rough in Birmingham um they are um they're mainly men um they're chaps who are um uh, pretty uh, pretty dug in uh, to yeah. where they are. They're more comfortable in their current position. Um, and actually, Sharon Thompson, the counsellor who leads on homelessness, and, and I are um, working together on a on a letter that's going to government next week to say, look, this is how much will be needed to keep people inside. We cannot have a situation, surely, where we get through this crisis, the funding line gets cut, and the people get thrown back on the streets. Uh, you yeah, can't of have course. that. <laughs> of course, of course. You can't have that. You, you know, and, uh, we've uh, built a bridge to a home, and now we've got to keep the bridge. We can't just blow the bridge up, like you know. <laughs> yeah. Bridge over the I mean, it's, uh, we um, last Friday we uh, I chaired uh, a charitable uh, discussion, and we had four charities represented. One was Acorns, one was St Mary's, one was Love Brom, Tim Andrews, fabulous yeah. charity, and the other one was Cypher Fireside with, uh, with Carly. Yeah. You know, and, and that is a wonderful charity, under-resourced, under, you know, funded, but actually has been around for many, many years, you know, actually probably longer than me and you have been active in the city. Yeah. That yeah. charity's been leading the way and things like that. But they're crying out, crippled for money. So we're going to take out an initiative to raise some charitable funds for them, but I'm welcoming your comments about supporting them and then, you know, driving yeah. through the homeless charity. Let's hope that charity isn't needed in the future. Exactly. Let's put the, you know, let's close that charity through success. Exactly. But I genuinely think we can do that. Hundred percent. Okay. Now let, let let's talk about your position as uh, 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 digital minister and you're you're on this sorry shadow for digital technology and things like that. You've got a passion for technology and things like that. Let's come to the the, the point at the moment when we look at uh, the technology that's been into place about looking at the, you know, the, the contacts and things like that. So South Korea, I'm going to steal yeah, your yeah. thunder, you've already mentioned it, I've put an app together, and it's worked particularly well, as it's reported in South Korea, for managing where people go and the contact of people and things like that. But clearly, you know, there are laws around, you know, um, what they can do and what they can't do and things like that are slightly different to ours. You know, we have certain views about our private life, what we can and do, what we can't do, and it can't be monitored by the state. So there's a definite balance. One, and I'm going to ask you a, an information, you know, a question around 5G technology, what's going on in the future, and how we can best learn from this. So we need to develop an app for next time it does happen, a pandemic. We'll come on to 5G and technology about that. But looking at the technology, looking at the digital sort of your position, what was on your desk three months ago? And then what's now going to be on yeah. your desk going forward? Yeah. Invite your answers to that. Yeah. So I'd say I've get, just a uh, point of information, I guess. So I, I've, I've uh, relinquished the, the shadow digital role when I got selected. Oh, right. Um, okay. My apologies. So, shadow, so the shadow mayor gig is, um, is a sort of full-time thing for me now. But yeah, I spent a lot of time on this and spent quite a bit of time in South Korea, actually, um, talking to the folks there about what had worked for them. And you know, one, their connectivity level was just outstanding. 
Now that's easier if you all live in apartment blocks, which is what they do in South Korea. Um, yeah. But the connectivity was incredibly important. The, the second thing though that um, I think Birmingham and the West Midlands has an opportunity in is the, it's the fusion of digital technology and <clears throat> traditional engineering. So, yeah. you know, quick plug, you know, a, a while ago I wrote a book called Dragons. It's the story of our nation's economy told through the lives of 10 entrepreneurs, including Matthew Bolton and George Cabri. Now, what is remarkable about those folks is that they take new technology, marry it to traditional devices to create something very, very new. And what you see in South Korea is the coming together of quite cool content. So, you know, if you think about the K-pop phenomenon, you know, which is a big thing in my house because my daughter is a K-pop fanatic. Um, they, they take content, they take gaming technology and they marry it to traditional physical devices. But that gives you a product that is completely new and different. Now, I think that is the big opportunity for us. And it's why Stephen Knight's proposals around the new film studio in Digbirth are incredibly important because strengthening the digital content we've got in the city is a big opportunity for us to marry digital engineering and traditional engineering to create something very new. So if you think about, um, if you think about a Jaguar XF, so a Jaguar XF has got more code in it than an Airbus. Um, if you think about the infotainment system on a Range Rover, that's worth more than the engine. So the, the, the digital content of traditionally engineered products is now the value add. And that means that that's a big opportunity for us as a traditional engineering base, as long as we strengthen our investment in digital skills and digital assets. And I think creating a digital studio in Digbirth is one of the ways we can do that. Now, you know, because I love history, I think there's a lot that we can be inspired by from the past. And um, one of the projects I'll be talking about a lot more in the, in the coming weeks and months is this idea of building a proper museum of science and industry in the city, <coughs> potentially on the Smithfield site. So actually Ian Ward and I had a conference call with Ian Blatchford, the head of the Science Museum um, earlier this week, because we'd like to put together a hundred million pound bid to build the, the best industry and science museum in the world in Birmingham. Now, that's partly because I want people arriving on high speed too, to know that they've arrived in the home of the industrial revolution. But I want the past to be an inspiration for the kids of the future as well. We have the second biggest civic collection in the country. It's worth about two billion pounds. It's by and large in a warehouse in Nietzsche's, rotting away. Yep. Let's Been get there. it out yep. of there. Let's get it out of there. Let's put it on show and let's use that you know, the, the majesty of that two centuries of engineering tradition to inspire the future. Because you walk around that warehouse in Nietzsche's, you've probably been around there, and you yeah, sort of I think, have, yeah. you think, bloody hell, this is a city of makers. We make stuff in this city. That is what we do. We make stuff. And the lesson of when you study entrepreneurs is you realise entrepreneurs make history by inventing the future. That's yeah. what we do in this city, and that's how we're going to pay our way this century. Great, great phrase. And I, and I was one of the, that generation that was inspired by the old science museum. Yeah. You know, yeah, the, in the old jewellery quarter when it was closed down. Yeah. I used to go there, used to have to go and visit a, a clinic there. And I, the only way that I would go would be, I would be screaming and shouting to go there for an hour, look right. at things, look at things going around, press buttons, listen to yeah. lights, you know, so to see lights and listen to things pinging 
and that, but all of that stuff is still there. He's just tucked away in Mitchell's exactly. and things like that. So I would, the Millennium Point, you know, the museum yeah. there is fabulous, but it needs to be open. It needs to be free. It's and much, we just need to be inspiring yeah. the kids, the engineers of the future, things like that. If you're looking at manufacturing, uh, and I'm, I'm mindful yeah. of time we bounce back, we need to inspire manufacturers of the future. And the way of doing that is to engage in them with, yeah. you know, things that you've got. So, I mean, you're looking at probably BCU territory there, aren't you? That, oh, as sure. you step off HS2, yeah. you're into okay. this, you know, this idea of that sort of sort of things like that. I think... Um, there's two points with BCU, obviously my connections, and I've seen you there a few times offering your advice and stuff like that. But if we look at the, the city that we're famous for now, we're the youngest city in Europe, we've got the most entrepreneurial sort of startups. We've got that. We've, we're just about to open prior to the, these times an incubator hub at Millennium Point, and that's for 40 people representing 40 businesses, 10 that are, that are established entrepreneurs. 10 that are undergraduates, 20 that are postgraduates, entrepreneurial hub, that's the ninth hub in the, uh, in the region. That is reaping rewards, clearly, because of the amount of startups, you know, and our mindset towards industry, technology, and everything else is coming together. We need to keep this going. How are we going to do that? How is that new mayor, well, our new uh, Labour mayor, going to ensure that that continues? Well, I've banged on about this for a while. I mean, I think um, we need a revolution in the way we teach enterprise in schools. Yeah. Um, you know, when I, um, you know, I, in, in normal times, I try and visit a school in my constituency every week. And I genuinely think that we have the most entrepreneurial generation since Matthew Bolton coming up through our schools right now. Um, but if you're, if you're a kid in Allen Rock, right, how, how do you build the networks that actually might help you write that business plan, get the funding, get the customers, get up on your feet. It's really very difficult. But, you know, um, Young Enterprise, but also the National Federation for Teaching Enterprise, they've got pretty good uh, curricula now. But I don't think we do a terribly good job as a city in really making sure that every child um, in our schools knows how to go and write a business plan, knows what it's all about. Um, and we, should, and we should be doing that. And that's why I kind of think that if you invented this Museum of Science and Industry, if we built that, you, I mean, it wouldn't be like the Science Museum in London. You, you would build it in a way that was a massive education centre because yeah. it's not just about the, um, the, the business of invention. It's about the, the business of commercialisation. It's people, you know, George, George and Richard Capri, they built a business from what they inherited, you know, from their dad. Um, you know, Matthew Bolton built it from largely from his dad's business and his wife's money. You know, they, they took mm. they took things that were small, they took ideas, and they scaled them up. Now, just creating that kind of um, I don't know what you'd call it. It's like a university, I suppose. I mean, it is like a it's a kind of a university of life in a way. But it's that it's that platform. We need to build that platform on which we educate our kids for the future. Maybe, I mean, there's two points that I pick up on there. One that we need to speak to Philip Loudon from BCU and say, can we have some space? Yes, indeed. <laughs> Secondly, we need to get some money to build this thing. And I think it, it yes. just opens up the museum, the history and the future. So it's old technology coming together with new technology yes. around yes. a science park of universities, exactly. Aston Universities there doing some, you know, Cameron and Mark Smith are doing some fabulous stuff there, bringing it all together. That's become the technology quarter. So we've got yeah, the gun yeah. quarter, we've got the jewellery quarter, we've got the technology quarter. 5G is going to go live there. So just yeah. talking about 5G, what yeah. do you see coming from 5G? 
how is that going to make a difference to me at home, to work, to transport, to everything around Birmingham? So it's going to make a massive difference in, in two ways. It's going to make a, a, huge, a huge difference to the way your healthcare is looked after. So, I mean, if you look at the speed with which you can um, download and transmit a scan, for example, telemedicine will be revolutionized by 5G in, in ways that we don't really understand yet. Um, and then second, obviously, when it comes to education, training, retraining, that will come up to a completely different kind of level. I suspect mm. we're seeing a hell of a lot more of this kind of stuff, um, but on connections that are kind of even better and faster. Um, but health, engineering, collaboration and education are going to be sort of three of the sectors that are um, transformed quite quickly. And what it will basically mean is that you can bring products to market much, much faster. So. If you look at um, what you can do with uh, high performance computing, you're able to um, uh, prototype much, much faster in a, in a much more effective simulated environment. That dramatically shortens your production cycle. So the pace of innovation, I think, is going to be revolutionized because, yeah. you know, the, the, the speed of prototyping will just be that much quicker. So I think pace, speed dramatically picks up. Massive opportunity, though, if your business is engineering. Huge, huge Yeah, I think it is, it is. So let's pick up on some of the live questions and things like that. Uh, Kevin Johnson, um, person that we were talking about slightly before, what's your, the, the Westmoreland Combined Authority has formed an economic impact group and has started work on a regional recovery plan. Doesn't the region need a more visionary and radical approach to the, uh, the exit strategy? and how we tackle some of the underlying opportunities and challenges from removing homelessness to developing skills and that uh, maximised, you know, the insecure employment to secure employment. We've dealt with homelessness, but let's yeah. the, like the recovery plan. Well, the mean, recovery Kevin, plan, what does that need to look like? Kevin's right here because it's not really a recovery plan that we want because mm. a recovery implies we're going back to what we had in the past. No one wants what we had in the past. What we want is a green reboot, a green restart. We want something that actually decisively puts our economy on a track that is big, bold and green. So we want to hit the zero carbon targets faster. Um, we want to close the gaps that we've got in inequality. Um, and, you know, crucially, um, we want it quickly and in a way that lowers risk. So I think, I mean, this isn't just a debate that we're having in the West Midlands. I mean, Marvin, uh, who's the chair of Bristol, is the, um, he's, Marvin's chair of the Global Conference of Mayors, and, and I have this other hat, I'm the chair of the Global Parliamentary Group, the World Bank and the IMF, and, and we're doing some stuff together on how, around the world, more power and resource needs to be handed to mayors to help mm. shape, because globally, 80% of economic growth is in cities. Cities are going to drive whatever the future kind of looks like. Um, but we need to be, it's, it's, it's not a, uh, it's, it's not a restoration that we're looking for you know it is a bit of a reformation you know we want a different kind of direction so I, you know I'm, I'm 100% with Kevin on this we've got to be much bolder and more visionary about the roadmap out of this it's not an exit yeah. plan yeah. it's not an exit plan it's a route map to a different place and I think uh, looking at what Faye says when looking at economic recovery in the region we have an opportunity to reset the dial and focus on community wealth yeah. building how can we make sure tomorrow's uh, regional economy looks greater, fairer, more inclusive and secure? I think yeah, that's a um, 
we've dealt with that, but I think you might want to pick up on a few strands I'll, of that. I will. I'm just going to share a link, actually, because um, one of the bits of work I did for um, the IMF and World Bank last year mm. was about the future of work. Um, I mean, if you, if you look at the acceleration of artificial intelligence, digital networks, yeah. and automation, you know, if COVID hadn't happened, the thing that I'd be wanting to talk to you about is zero carbon and automation, because yeah. we have about a quarter of a million jobs in Birmingham and the West Midlands that are at risk through automation. Okay, so what are those people going to do in the future? Right? So we don't know. Unless we actually start investing in different kind of skill systems, different kind of business opportunities, backing out entrepreneurial classes, there aren't going to be jobs for those people to go to. So we've, we've actually got to take account of um, what I call just transitions, plural. You know, we've talked about supporting people through the transition to zero carbon. We've also got to support people through the transition to a different kind of world where a lot of jobs we have today are automated. So we, we, we've got not just, you know, COVID to deal with, we've also got climate and the future of work to worry about too. So that's why we need a much bigger kind of more imaginative conversation than simply just restoring what we had two to three years ago. Thanks very much. Okay, and then we're talking, Joe Birch wants to talk about, you know, the impact of recession retraining and things like that. What's the strategy around ensuring that all the qualifications and everything goes through and we retain people in the region? I think that we're looking at, because some uh, exams have been canceled, we're looking at different ways of managing things and things like that, getting the qualifications. We briefly touched upon universities. You know, universities might be struggling with overseas, yeah. you know, uh, students and things like that. Um, COVID, and the actual question is, COVID will have a massive impact on the next generation of skilled talent. What vision does Liam have for ensuring our graduates don't get lost following the impact of COVID-19? So there's two, two or three things there. So we, we've got an immediate crisis now, which is making sure that um, kids in low-income families have laptops to do homework. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm actually I'm talking to Ian Ward about this this afternoon. We're about to start a, a census uh, of all the schools in the city to see where there are kids without the technology to do learning at home. And then we'll be putting out a big shout to the city to say, okay, look, we need X number of laptops in order to yeah. make sure that the poorest kids aren't left behind in this immediate crisis. Second thing we've got to do is we've got to look quite radically, almost like a GI bill for key workers. So how do we make sure that um, we not just equip people with a right to work, but a right to learn as well? Now that is important as we reskill because the truth is a lot of businesses are thinking about shrinking by 20, 25%. They're not yeah. taking up the loans that are available because they don't want to get into debt or any more debt. They're going to shrink their workforces. So there's got to be a huge kind of free training program, a little bit like the Rover Task Force when Rover went down. Mm. Um, and then the third thing we've got to do is we've got to work incredibly hard to bring inward investment into the city. Um, now, obviously, you know, a lot of my work over the last 10 years has been with countries like China, where actually I think we need to be strengthening links. You know, that's the that is the other book I wrote, you know, not you know, a few years ago now. It's, you know, how do we actually become an economy that is better connected um, with China. Um, 
because the truth is that is where a lot of the inward investment is going to come from over the next 10 years. It's not going to come from the United States. It's going to come from the East, um, and not just China, but also India. Um, and so there's two or three big things that we've got to do, but we're not going to get the jobs here unless we've got the skills here. And so the investment with skills, if you like, has got to come first. Are you okay to run on for another, say, 10, 15 minutes or because we're close to three? Uh, let me just check. I think I have got, I've got a call at three, unfortunately. Okay, so yeah, we'll probably sorry. need to wrap up. So for the last two minutes, it, it was that question, what's the, what's the positives coming out of this situation? The, the, there's two big positives. So one is that despite the self-isolation, we've come together as a community yeah. um, in a way that few of us can remember. That unity in the community is the foundation on which we will build our future. So the second point is there is a widespread belief that we shouldn't be trying to go back to what we had in the past. We should be trying to build something new. And for me, that is about becoming Britain's first zero carbon region. Let's lead the zero carbon revolution in the way we led the carbon revolution. We know we can do it. We've just got to pull together and get the task done. We've done it before. We've done I mean, it before. Just a, a minute or two, just to, while you've got an audience, your message. You know, it can be your leadership uh, you know, message or he can be looking at you as the future it's, mayor. It's, the it's, West really, it's really simple. It's really simple. Come, come and help us, basically. When we are, um, we're, I'm, you know, I'm not going to do this on my own. I have no plans to do it on my own. Um, but I am incredibly confident that by pulling together, we can do this. So, you know, come and help us. Get in touch. You know, give us a shout. Okay, brilliant. I just want to say, looking at this and your phone's going to start ringing. Uh, Liam Burnham, B for Hodge Hill. You've been absolutely brilliant, as we knew okay. you would be. I want to thank you for coming into the Bromley Den, speaking to uh, Downtown in Business. Hopefully, you'll come back on in the very near future, and let's follow yeah. you on your trail to become the next West Midlands Combined Authority Mayor, Metro Mayor. I want to thank you for your time, and just to uh, wish you all the very best. Stay safe, and we'll look at, to see you at the end of the tunnel. Thank you very brilliant. much for your time. Great. Brilliant. Thanks, Thank Paul. you. Cheers. Thanks, everyone. Bye -bye. Take care. Stay safe.